0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Today we have Amanda Cohen.
1: I know that I can't reopen the same way that I closed. I just know it's too devastating to look at my staff and say, I might have to put you on unemployment again one day and you won't have any savings and you're going to be terrified. We have very, very small margins in restaurants and, and we've all accepted this as this is okay. And because we've accepted that, we haven't been able to pay our workers enough.
0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly conversation about food and passion and making a difference in the world, and we're having it in the context of the coronavirus crisis as we have been with our last number of episodes today we have a guest who we wanted to have on for a long time we tried once before we had technical challenges but we've got amanda cohen uh from new york city uh who had a restaurant still has but it's closed like all restaurants are called dirt candy amanda thanks so much for being with us
1: thank you so much for having me
0: we had a lot to talk about amanda before coronavirus crisis and as i say we had scheduled you. And I remember we had some technical challenges and we couldn't quite pull it off. Um, And I want to talk about um, some of the voice that you have given to the needs of workers in particular and what this crisis has underscored. But first, I want our listeners to know you a little bit better and to know Dirt Candy. Tell us about the restaurant because it's a pretty special place.
1: <laughs> so, uh, Dirt Candy is an all vegetable restaurant. I think it's the only one like it in the world. We've been open for almost 11 years now. Uh, and uh, not to toot my own horn too much, but I definitely think we were a part of, if not, the first one who really pioneered the vegetable movement.
0: And how did that come to pass? I guess for you, how did you decide to take the risk of being the first and probably for a while the only?
1: Well, you know, I had been cooking for a number of years in the city and my background was in vegetarian food, but I had done also omnivore food. I had, I had gone back and forth between the two kinds of cuisines and I sort of had this chance to open my own restaurant and I knew I wanted it to be vegetarian, but I didn't really want it to be vegetarian like all the other vegetarian restaurants. My vegetarianism wasn't really so much based in sort of anything ethical or environmental or health wise. It was really just, I don't like meat. But I felt like there was a lot of people like me who just really liked food, but maybe didn't want to eat as as much uh, meat as they had or didn't know vegetables very well. And I looked around and I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, there's thousands of chicken restaurants and fish restaurants and steak restaurants. And there is not a single restaurant anywhere, anywhere that I can find in the world that's just solely dedicated to vegetables. And I was like, "Ah, oh, well, that, that, that's my niche. That's my million dollar idea.
0: Well, when you describe it as omnivore cooking, I don't know, it makes me feel kind of primitive all of a sudden, I feel like a caveman or something like that with the the, the omnivore label, but it's a different style, right? It's a different style of cooking altogether in terms of what you're doing at Dirt Candy.
1: Yeah. I mean, and we had really for years going into it and still now, you know, we didn't, there weren't any rules. We really felt like we were pioneers and our, our kitchen was a lab. Uh, You know, I'd be like, we'd start looking up recipes and there were none. We just literally, there was no recipes for what we were trying to do. And so we kept having to uh, start from scratch and create them. And we did for years, we did so much testing. We were like, what if you take this vegetable, what happens if you do this, this and this with it, and then you turn it into this? And what happens if you do this? And it was uh, really exciting. Now, not that it's not exciting, but we have a little bit more of a, a dictionary, an encyclopedia that we can rely on.
0: I know it's hard to make restaurants work at any time. Economically, and now with COVID nineteen, it's it's essentially impossible. But what what was it like before COVID nineteen? How were you able to make dirt candy work?
1: With a lot of hard work. So um, I'm pretty open and honest about how restaurants work, and uh, you know it's it was a struggle every day. When we I had had a much smaller restaurant that was also dirt candy. We call it in my mind, and I I call it little candy. And so my new restaurant, which is still called Dirt Candy, but I refer to it often as Big Candy uh, because the size difference was so great. My first one was 350 square feet, and now the bigger one is 2,500 square feet. So huge difference, although still not that big of a restaurant. And when we opened Big Candy, the we, we started off with no tipping. It was something I felt really passionate about that I wanted to pay all my workers a fair wage and I did really really didn't want to rely on tipping to pay my servers
0: you were ahead of Danny Meyer on this it sounds like
1: yeah I was by about uh, maybe six months or so a year okay, okay. although it had, I think everybody had been sort of mulling it over for a while you know the margins start getting much much smaller in a, in a business that already has very small margins our payroll is incredibly high and uh it's not in any way which is a little bit different than some of the other systems people have it's not tied into our profits uh, no matter how well we're doing or poorly our servers make the same amount of money it's just expensive we have a huge payroll it's new york city my rent is actually high but not as high as i suppose it could be insurance when you're not when you have when you have a no tipping restaurant your insurance is actually much higher than it would have been because now you're insured on top of your server's full salary.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. That's probably not something anybody appreciates or thinks of without it being explained the way you just did.
1: Right, and so that's one of these reasons where people are. We're often, but there was a sort of a movement for a while, and people were like, "Oh, why isn't a straight twenty percent that I'm now paying extra, or that's sort of rolled into the bill?" And the truth is, it's it's not. Your expenses go way up, uh, and then your payroll taxes go up because again. Your tax now on top of a full salary, and not on top. And before you weren't really tipped, uh, taxed on top of your tips. So there's all these little things that start adding into it. It's not an easy uh, business to be in in general, even if you just run a restaurant, and it's incredibly hard uh, if you uh, don't have tipping.
0: So Amanda, you know, um, because you've been part of it, that restaurants and chefs are at the heart and soul of Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign and the amazing work that we've been able to do making sure that kids around the country get uh, school meals if they're eligible for them. We, of course, have heard uh, so many uh, poignant and painful stories over the last couple of weeks about restaurants having to close. Um, in some ways, it was probably an agonizing decision, but in some ways, the decision probably made itself because there, there probably wasn't much choice. But tell us what it was like for you, what decision-making process you went through How many of your employees you had to let go and and what what did you say to them?
1: Uh, Well, it was sort of a a slow rollout for us. Came down on uh, Thursday night before basically everybody officially had to close unless you were doing delivery, that you had to go to 50%. So, and it was interesting because up until that moment, we'd actually been really busy. So we hadn't started feeling the effects of it. I know there was other restaurants uh, that it had started feeling the effects of the, of the virus. But we had an incredibly busy Tuesday night, probably one of our busiest Tuesday nights. And then Wednesday night was also really busy. And in hindsight, I should have realized it was sort of like your last meal out before the empire falls, you know, it wow. like was just going out before they couldn't go out anymore. And, but nobody quite knew that's exactly what was going to happen. So on Friday we opened with a half staff and we were at, It was fine. We'd sort of told, we had rejiggered the dining room. We had some people who actually weren't feeling well. So we were like, don't even worry about coming in, uh, which is not something we maybe necessarily would have said before this all happened. Uh, And we told everybody that we would try to do, give them as many shifts as we could in the upcoming weeks. And then on Saturday night, again, we ran at half staff. And that's when we started hearing all the sort of noise that, uh, you know, other restaurants were actually officially closing and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. If I close, how am I going to reopen? What are we going to do? Uh, but then I, unlike most restaurants, I actually, uh, I had a little bit of a break because we're only open five days a week. So we're closed Sunday, Monday, when there was so much more information coming out. And then by Monday morning, everybody was told that they would, unless they were doing takeout and delivery, they would have to close by, uh, 8 p.m. that night. And so I sat down with my managers and we uh, wrote emails to everybody and said, you know, we're so sorry. Uh, For the moment, we are going to close. We maybe will reopen for delivery at some point, but we want everybody to go home and be safe for the next couple of weeks and we'll regroup. Uh, And uh, we asked everybody to go on unemployment. Every single person who works for me went on unemployment.
0: I was going to ask you that. Every every single one. Wow. And how many folks are we talking about?
1: Uh, Around 30 or so. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. And then, uh, you know, we also wrote a note saying, if anybody needs help, please let us know if if unemployment isn't going to cover some of your immediate uh, bills, let us know and we will figure out a way to take care of you. And we wow. cleaned our walk in and we invited everybody in to take what they could. And uh, we're still in the process of uh, donating the food. Uh, it's uh, I think uh, I think a lot of people sort of donated their food right away and the food banks were overwhelmed. So we decided to keep as much as we could. Uh, we certainly have a lot that will stay fresh for a while and we've been donating it slowly.
0: And how's, uh, how are all the folks on your team doing? Is everybody healthy? How's their their frame of mind? How are they How are they just kind of getting by?
1: You know, I think everybody's okay. Uh, we've checked in with them a couple of times and there's a lot of group chats and it's been nice. We've had lots of social cocktails with staff. Uh, Virtual cocktails and uh, yeah, I mean everybody's a little bored. <laughs> I think that's an overwhelming feeling, uh, but uh, they're doing okay. And one of the things that uh, just to go back, the one of the things that we're very fortunate about is because I didn't have tipping, most of my staff is at the top end of unemployment. If they were at uh-huh. their server and they work 40 hours a week for me, they're actually going to top out pretty high, which is very different than most servers and bartenders all around the country who can only file for unemployment off of their uh, base salary, not their tips. Tipping is so that I can also pay my back of house more money. So it all evened out a little. It doesn't, I mean, nobody is well off, but uh, I don't feel that anybody felt very desperate at the moment.
0: Now, Amanda, I've, um, Listen to uh, on radio, TV, podcasts, a lot of chefs and restaurateurs talk about the impact that this is having on the restaurant industry, the important role that the restaurant industry plays in our country. But I've heard you say something that I haven't heard anybody else saying, perhaps most uh, powerfully in a New York Times uh, uh, column uh, in uh, last month on March 26th, I think it was, where you wrote that if our workers need charity so badly now, maybe. owners weren't doing this right in the first place. And you said the shutdown shows that our only moral choice is for the industry to provide a better safety net for workers. So you've given voice to something that is not just about this immediate crisis, but what this immediate crisis has created a window into in terms of the economic conditions of the workers. Say a little bit more about that. And why were you uh, so moved to to write about it?
1: I just... You know, I'm devastated and I'm devastated that I've participated in this industry and willingly. Um, we have known for years in this industry that we don't charge enough for the food we sell in restaurants. And let me be very clear about this. I, Food is, is a right, but eating out in a restaurant is a privilege. And that's two very different things. Um, and... Well, as I've talked about, we have very, very small margins in restaurants. And and we've all accepted this as this is okay. And because we've accepted that, we haven't been able to pay our workers enough. I don't really pay myself through the restaurant. So I I don't make a living off of dirt candy.
0: How How does that work? How are you able to sustain yourself?
1: If I took a salary, a real salary, the salary that I would be paid if I didn't own a restaurant, the restaurant would not be able to function. And even taking a small one actually... It guarantees that we will not make a profit. However, I'm very fortunate. I do a lot of consulting work and half of the money actually from my consulting work usually goes into the restaurant and then the other half I take home. But the restaurant does not, is not profitable enough to pay me a salary.
0: And um, although you don't often hear restaurateurs say that, I have talked to a number of chefs and restaurateurs who have said, I don't have a restaurant to make money. I make money so that I can have a restaurant because that's what I love to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. I definitely I take outside jobs so my staff can have jobs. And I think this is something that a lot of people actually don't talk about. A lot of chefs don't talk about, but I am certainly not alone in it. We we've kept our costs so low. And because of that, we can't offer our employees health insurance, or we can't offer them the opportunity to have savings unless they have two or three jobs at once, particularly in New York, where rent is so expensive. Um, and I just feel that as an industry right now, if we reopen the same way as we closed, we will have literally learned nothing. Uh, we have to walk back into this industry with changes. We have to start charging more. And, and maybe it does mean we don't have as many restaurants. I don't know. And I don't wish any restaurant to close. And maybe we have to accept that if we do reopen, we're not. I, I'm not going to do 100 people a night anymore. Uh, I'll do 75 and maybe I'll have a little bit less staff, but I can pay my staff more and somehow we can we can work this out. But opening back up and knowing that something like this could happen again and I'm going to have to, or I, other restaurants and maybe myself at some point, will have to turn to my customers and say, hey, can you now support my restaurant by this GoFundMe? It just doesn't make any sense. We're so broken.
0: So let me ask you, about this though, because I think it's such an important point. Uh, and I want to press on it a little bit. Some folks would say, um, thanks for having that sentiment, but it's not really a choice. It's, 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 it's kind of what the market forces dictate. Um, and how do you answer? I'm, I'm thinking of a conversation I once had with somebody. We were pitching them to, it was a casual dining change. We were pish, pitching them to contribute to share our strength. And we said, if you could just uh, you know increase the price of your French fries by one penny and give that to us, that would raise an enormous amount of money. And he said back, if we could have increased our French fries by one penny, uh, we would have done so already. So there is this sense that there's only so much that the market can bear. Do you feel that there's more? flexibility there if you're willing to make some accommodations like you've described, perhaps a smaller restaurant with better paid staff. How? What gives you the confidence you could pull that off?
1: I don't have the confidence, but I know that I can't reopen the same way that I closed. I just no. know it's, it's too devastating to look at my staff and say, I might have to put you on unemployment again one day and you won't have any savings and you're going to be terrified. And I think it is true. The market thinks it can't bear it, but I also think the market doesn't want to bear it. No. It's sort of a big difference. Um, you know, if people, if I could, my, my big tasting menu at Dirt Candy is a hundred dollars and, and I'm sort of in, in a unique position there because I sell vegetables and in general, people don't actually want to spend a lot of money on vegetables, but if I could raise it to $125, which yes, $25 is a lot of money and I know it's hard earned money and I'm so grateful people come and spend their money at the restaurant, but you know, $25 more on that on that meal, which maybe means that you don't go out for lunch that day, you know, you bring your lunch for home would mean the world to my staff, I could pay for health insurance for everybody on my staff, or I can at least partially pay for it, and they could pay into it as well. And it's really, for me, it's about changing the way consumers think about food. And think about how expensive it is and what they want to pay for it. Because there is something ridiculous that you go and eat in a restaurant. I can't put a percentage on it, but I'm sure lots of people who come to eat at Dirt Candy have health insurance and have savings. And by their unwillingness to pay more at the restaurant, they're saying that the people who work there aren't worthy of those same things. That's not a system I can participate in.
0: You know, in some ways, it's such a, a radical notion, but it so badly needs to be said. I've been in situations where I've, you know, been in board rooms or conversations with big companies that had to make what was considered a tough decision, either to reduce their healthcare for their workers or to close a factory. And somebody would say, well, the economics dictate it. And I, I would always think, well, what economics are those that, you know, the, the owners and the stockholders are still making an enormous amount of money. So is it the, is it the economics dictate that they continue to make that money and that the workers don't get as much? So when you said maybe the, the market doesn't want to believe it's possible, that that's a pretty fascinating issue to kind of drill down on. So, so do do you get pushback from others in the industry? Do you get support or to what degree are you a lone voice here or or are you developing allies?
1: I think I have admirers. I'm not sure if I have allies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I I think I point out some truths that we all recognize, but it's really hard to it's hard to embrace them and I get that and you know we had this again going back to the the tipping movement we had a no tipping movement for a while in the city and it's very hard to stick with it and people learned so much about it and but people tried they wanted to but when the economic realities uh came to light for them it was just it was just too much and I think uh they appreciated it (laughs) but it, it was too hard to stick with and and I I feel like that's still happening a little bit right now. And I'm speaking with a lot of chefs and I'm on a lot of chef calls. One of the things that's happening in the CARES Act is that that it's going to cover your payroll. If you accept the the loan, it'll cover part of your payroll.
0: This is the last package that Congress passed, is that yeah, right? Yeah. But
1: part of the problem is that it still doesn't cover tipped employees. It doesn't cover tips because tips aren't considered part of payroll. And so we're still in this whole mess. And I sit on these calls and I just think to myself, ah, oh, Why can't we just all agree that we get rid of tipping? And then, I mean, obviously we can't retroactively get rid of it. We don't have to be in this system anymore. There are other ways out of it.
0: Amanda, you know, your workers uh, intimately. It's a small restaurant and it's a small number, 30 folks. And I'm sure they represent a a lot of other restaurant workers around the country. Most of us know them though, as a label restaurant worker. Tell us, About who they are and what their lives are like, you've given us the sense that you know they live pretty close to the margin. They had to file for unemployment insurance right away. Can you give us a little bit of personal description of what kind of lifestyle, what kind of economic pressures are they feeling?
1: Well, I think before and still, you know, they live very close to the edge, and that's with making a a decent amount of money at the restaurant. But it's New York, you know. Most of them live at least half an hour to an hour away by subway. They have multiple roommates and most of them, not most of them, I would say a good handful of them also have second jobs because they're just, they cannot make enough money to live in this city anymore.
0: And in the back of your mind, although none of us have a crystal ball, are you, is there a a date that you're looking at the horizon where I'm sure hoping I can be open by, do you see yourself being open in the In the summertime, what's it just what's it feel like in your gut?
1: You know, I imagine that the earliest we can probably open is June, because my guess is around June will be when we can. But even then, you know, it's so tricky. And this is something that we're all starting to struggle with. Even I mean, how are we going to (laughs) reopen? Let's say I I have I, I take the loan and I have money and I can do it. And that all works out great. But what am I reopening to? Who is going out in the city? Who still has money to go out in this city, and who wants to go to a crowded restaurant?
0: Well, that's the, that's the scary part because even once we, everybody seems to be hanging on by their fingernails till we kind of get to the, you know, the peak of uh, coronavirus spread. But then, even once we get to the peak, it's a long way down. If it was a long way up. It's going to be a long way down, and you could see there being quite a period in which people are still, uh, even though you know the odds are getting better. Um, there's still going to be risk uh, attendant to being in public places and uh, to not following social distancing. So again, none of us can know, but it's uh, it sure makes planning difficult. And will, your, will most of your folks just kind of sit tight and hope to wait to come back?
1: Yeah. As far as I know, everybody who works for me still wants to come back and work for me. Uh, I mean, nobody has said they don't. Um, although they don't really work for me anymore. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, and I have to imagine by June, they're going to be really excited to get back to work.
0: What will your days be like for the next few weeks and months? Um, you talked about being on chef calls. You've been writing these really important op-eds like the one in the New York times. What else will, will you be focused on?
1: Well, my house is really clean.
0: Yes, all of ours are.
1: <laughs> um, so that's that's you know that's been a plus. And I think once we can start seeing the the thrive and we can see that there's an actual end to this, uh, I think there's gonna be a lot of planning actually on and how we reopen then it's I, I know that I, I cannot see dirt candy reopening the exact same way it closed just in terms of the menu. And so I, I think we're going to have to do a lot of planning like that. And it's probably going to take us six months or so to get back to the sort of restaurant we were beforehand and serving that kind of food and, and the service we had. And so I, I feel like there's going to be a lot of planning to, to open because at this point, and this will be the same for every restaurateur out there and chef, we're not opening a restaurant that was just closed for a week. We're, we're opening new restaurants and it's an incredible amount of work.
0: Danny Meyer told me the other day that uh, he feels like when he was 35 and in startup mode, he's he's creating a restaurant. He's going to be opening a new yeah. restaurant. Exactly. Uh, and I'm sure that's true for for everybody. Well, uh, I and I know a lot of other people are really rooting for you, not just because Dirt Candy is such a great restaurant, but because the way you've talked about uh, the reopening sounds like it could be the model for a an economic model for a very different kind of restaurant and one that really invests in. It's people in ways that we all talk about but haven't always figured out, uh, you know, the economics of actually pulling off. So uh, it's important that all of our restaurants, or at least most of them, reopen. But it sounds like you're going to do something new with this, and uh, I can't wait to see it.
1: Me too. (laughs) Thank you.
0: (laughs) Uh, We've been talking to Amanda Cohen. Her restaurant is Dirt Candy. And I'd urge everybody to check out her March 26 New York Times column about uh, the importance of uh, a model that invests in workers so that they don't depend on charity when we go through a tough time like we're going through now. Amanda, thanks so much for being on Add Passion and Stir. I look forward to having a conversation in the future that is more about the food and the vegetables and your new model than it is about coronavirus. But thanks, Amanda, for being with us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Uh, you can go to our website, adpassionandstir.com, and find our other episodes, and you can rate us and rank us and share this conversation with others, thanks to the team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, and our producer at District Productive, uh, Paul Woodall woody for making this possible. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.